I don't understand people who don't use chamois cream. It's a lot better. Because I know what it must look like down there. I'm currently using Assmaster's chamois cream. Hey, podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi Pro Cycling Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, sit down and listen in because we're about to begin. I got something to say, man. Yo-ho! Welcome to episode 87 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi-pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who's talking about chamois cream. Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist. And yes, a very, very quick review to get us underway today. Great podcast, five stars by St. John's from the US. Great content covers relevant topics good job thank you st john's for that review i really appreciate you taking the time out it's short but it's to the point and a reminder to you that if you do like the show please take some time out to drop a review on itunes or stitcher because five stars make me think thank you very much and Two really interesting things I found from the internet this week. The first one, of course, is the follow-on from the last two episodes where we're talking about mouth rinsing and this time the effect of mouth rinsing, but mouth rinsing on simulated cycling time trial performance that commenced in fed or fasted state. So the aim here was to study the mouth rinse on a 60-minute simulated cycling time trial performance that commenced in a fasted or fasted state. And 12 male cyclists each competed four experimental time trials using a double-blinded Latin square design. The actual trials themselves were two hours after eating a meal that contained 2.5 grams per kilogram of body mass of carbohydrates and two that were from an overnight fasted state. And prior to and after every 12.5% of total time during the performance ride, either a 10% maltodextrin, carbohydrate, or a taste match placebo solution was rinsed for 10 seconds and then immediately spat out. There were significant main effects for both pre-ride nutritional status and the carbohydrate mouth rinse. So the results from this are that the carbohydrate mouth rinse improved mean power to a greater extent after an overnight fast compared with a fed state. They concluded that a carbohydrate mouth rinse improved performance to a greater extent in a fasted compared to a fed state. However, optimal performance was achieved in a fed state with the addition of a carbohydrate mouth rinse. So... In some ways, it says to me, you can go out training on an empty stomach and there's going to be no problems. You could get a benefit of actually just rinsing some carbohydrates before the actual training ride you go on. But it also says to me that your body has to be fueled up with carbohydrates and ready to go to get that optimal performance that you need when you are pushing yourself very hard as you do in training. And then you can add a carbohydrate mouth rinse on top to get a better optimal performance again. Now, Article 2 was a race report, and it's Camworth, his blog spot, which is really interesting. I've got to say, it seems a little dry because the text is not broken up, and it's a bit hard to read in that sense. But once you get into the details of what he's writing, some of the reports that he does are really, really fascinating, and it's a really good insight into the world of pro cycling from Cam's perspective. There's a couple of sections I want to read to you just to give you an example of what he's writing about. There are a few telltale signs in the peloton when you know you're chasing hard. Firstly, the chitter-chatter amongst riders and teams stops, and secondly, the swarming towards the front of the bunch subsides. 
If you go fast enough, the peloton simply forms a long line and everybody is content to be getting a free ride. It's now a big waste of energy if you try and ride in the wind chatting at 50 or 60 kilometers per hour. And the second passage, when I was pulling on the front to reach those speeds, it's between 450 and 500 watts for around 90 seconds at a time. That's pretty solid. I guess in the final hour you might do around 15 pulls at that intensity. So it's enough to remind you of what lactic acid feels like in the final kilometers. The gap kept dropping slowly and with 12 kilometers to go, they still had nearly two minutes. So this is when the pulls had to be really full gas. Here you bang up the power and speed, but put a little less time in between 550 and 650 watts for around 30 to 45 seconds, which should have the bunch rolling above 60 kilometers an hour. So pretty fascinating insights, and these are peppered throughout the entire blog. So if you can stand sifting through a lot of text to find some gems, then definitely check out Camworth's blog. We ended up in Asia a lot on these teams because um, you're just not getting the invites to Europe and, and you do any races that you can. This is Phil Guyman. You just end up in a lot of crazy, fringe, low-budget, uh, very marginal safety kind of kind of races and and you know just weird hotels and and just host housing and it kind of it never stopped he's garmin sharp's new recruit and here he's talking about his days as a semi-pro i did uh i did this stage race in trinidad and tobago and this is one of the many stories from those days so it was the end of the year that i was one of the years i was on kenda five hour energy um and and that team I forget which year it was. Yeah, I think that was the, the team had folded and, and we were they were no longer paying us. Um, so just out of basically desperation trying to make some prize money, I went with a friend as a guest rider to his team uh, at this stage race in Trinidad. They didn't really close the road for the race sometimes. So And like the all the stages were several hours late. Um, the, the first, so the first stage we get there and, and the first stage is an uphill time trial. And I don't know any, like there's no other pros in the race. I'm like, cool, I'm going to win this. Uh, we show up and the uphill time trial, I didn't really explain it, but it was, it was 800 meters. Um, so the, the winner was this like giant Jamaican track sprinter. I think I was like sixth. Um, and, and the race kind of went on from there where it ended up one of my teammates, um, the, at, at that race, took the yellow jersey in a criterion later that day, and then it was like a double day stage. So the next day, I rode the front for for a hundred k's or something, and uh, we get to this town, and some it's at some point we're just the the lead car just pulled off and it needed gasoline like the whatever the moto. So we're not they weren't stopping traffic anymore because that was the only thing getting people off the road. And this guy just turned off the course. So it went from like me just writing tempo to me, I'm still on the front of the field, but I'm, I'm threading the needle between moving traffic on either side going, going, you know, 80 Ks, hundred Ks an hour. Um, and I was going faster just to string the field out to keep it safe. Like I was just trying, basically I didn't want it to bunch up because then guys are going to get run over. So I just, I just kept going. And uh, finally, we turned off that road, and we were, like, back on the course, and we're doing this, like, twisty up-and-down climbing section, and I didn't even know, but I took the KOM jersey there because apparently they were climbs. And then, um, the, according to, to my, my Garmin, we had, I think we had, like, 10K left in the stage, and it was down to a group of, like, 20 guys, uh, including my teammate who was in yellow, 
So I'm like, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about it. And then one local guy kind of like bombs a corner and it started to drizzle. So it was sort of dangerous and I don't know the roads here. So he takes his corner, this crazy line. And I'm like, all right, well, we have 10 Ks to catch him. I'll give him 10 bike lengths and, and let him just crash and, and he'll come right back. Um, we round the next bend and it was a finish line. There was no K to go, no nothing. He just knew the finish line was coming up and he won. And, uh, and I, and I talked to the guy who invited me there. I was like, Hey, so I'm leaving. <laughs> like whatever you think is fair with the prize money is fine, but I'm not going to hang out here and, you know, and break a femur. Um, cause I was going to Bissell the next year and kind of like, that was a big opportunity for me. So I'm just going to leave and, and good luck with this thing. And then I was, I was following the rest of that race on the internet and it was like, there was a flood one day, like the four of the next stages were canceled and it was this giant mess. And that's like, but I mean, that's just the kind of stuff that, that we were going through. Like, it's just, you know, real, real minor league kind of situation. It's not the, the races you see on TV, but you know, there it was, there were crowds and there were people who trained all year for it. And that was that was what they had. So by the sounds of it, he slogged it out in some pretty ordinary situations in many places around the world. And if you don't know who Phil is, he has a pretty unique story compared to the rest of the pro cycling field. He didn't make his way through the juniors and national teams that some do. And then once you perform well at the world championships, you continue on through a development team onto a pro continental team and then ending up as a pro all before your 23rd birthday. He worked his way through US domestic teams, which the majority of are continental level or below. And sometimes so far from from anything in preparation for for what I would do here. You know, like that just it was just being it was just finding a way to still be in the sport for a couple of those years and doing these criteriums, you know, these ninety minute races in the US and you know, it's 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 nothing like the the races I have here. It wasn't preparing me, it wasn't making me stronger and then you know, I have I had friends that were on the U.S. national team, which never was never interested in me, and I'm just watching them. Like they're kind of doing these races or similar ones, or doing the U23 versions of these races, and um, you know the the classics and all. And they've they've raced these courses um, of of the bigger stuff and Lavenir, that kind of thing. And I'm just like sort of watching from a distance. Like, how do I? There, it's a whole different planet. How do I? How do I get into that? Um, and it just took a long time. And a lot of guys, I mean, I know a lot, I have a lot of friends who I, who are obviously still back there. Um, and, and they're kind of in the same boat, like what, you know, how can, how can we, we sneak through in Phil's footsteps? Okay, so today we're talking about turning pro or what it takes to turn pro from the perspective of a rider that started late and went through some pretty tough times. Learning along the way until he signed with a world tour team this year where he recently entered his first race. This is the Tour de Saint Louis, and for those of you that don't know this race, it's a season opener in Argentina for the Pro Tour, and it was Phil's first race as a World Tour Pro. That ended in a not-so-surprising result for Phil, which we will get into later, but right now, what's more relevant is how did he get here? More than anything, I think it's about doing the work, not talent, and being willing to work harder than those around you. Eventually, what, what set me apart as, as the guy who was that I that I did 
that I did outwork those around me in, in most cases that there were, you know, I, I train more, I train longer. I, I don't, I don't really think I, I have that much talent and I kind of, I kind of hate the concept of talent in some ways because it's a cop out for people who don't, who don't do the work. I think I'm talented. I think a lot of guys are talented, but there's, there's things you can do and that's, that's on the bike and off the bike. I, I mean, one, one of the factors that I'm, that I'm on the team and I'm not going to kid myself and say it was all my results is the fact that I, I write a blog and I talk about sponsors and the team appreciates that. And, and you know, they notice that kind of thing. They noticed that, that I sold a lot of Bissell vacuums last year and I thought it was fun to, to, to do that. Um, and I see guys in the U S that are great bike racers and they're in the early breaks and they're getting results and they're winning things. And they're like, why, why hasn't this happened for me? And, and I'm thinking, well, you're not doing that other thing. You know, when, when you get home from, from a ride, you know, you, you didn't tweet a picture of your bike that, that it's, it's all sort of part of that. And, and maybe they shouldn't have to. And, and it's, you know, it's obviously it's, it's hard, but, but there's a lot of things that, that everyone can do and, and the dedication goes there. And, and I think like, I don't know if I'm, if I was, if I was good at it, but I'm, like you said, I'm, I'm willing to sit down and, and keep plugging away at it. And it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like work most of the time. Um, I, I look back and like, I don't, I don't feel like, like, like you were saying, I, I, I don't look back at those times and remember being miserable when I was sleeping on an air mattress in a shitty house all summer. Um, it was just what I was doing. It's, it's not, it's not that bad. And I think a lot of people can, you can always give more and you can always try more and dedicate more. And, and, um, yeah. And, and, and I guess I'm, I'm an example of that, uh, in a lot of ways. So what type of work is he talking about? It's not always the work that you might expect a wannabe pro to be doing. And like he touched on regarding the things he does off the bike, it's not just trying to get the attention of other teams and sponsors. Although that does come into it, it's also about survival in the semi-pro world. So stepping back a couple of notches and just talking about like being a semi-pro, like this podcast itself is kind of based on the semi-pro and it's a bit of a spectrum from someone that just maybe wins some prize money but at the top end of it which is where i think you sat for a long time is where you just don't have enough money to be a full-time athlete and so you've got to do all these other things and there's kind of you talk about this breakout moment this breakout moment that's going to get you noticed that's going to get you able to move up to get onto a better team to sort of keep going but even getting to that point takes some years because of the sport and how how it's structured and if you if you don't get the fast track like you were just talking about then you know through a national team or whatever then um, you've got to go through all this other stuff but the way you survived was through businesses which I find really fascinating because being able to sustain what you love doing and what you're sort of got your head down and focused on through a business is really cool but how do you manage it how do you manage all the businesses you have like your creator of podium legs podium cold uh, co-founder sharetheroad.com and clean athletes you've done some coaching so how do you maintain racing and training and these businesses um well, well now i unfortunately don't have to with most of that it was kind of something that i would i would start in the off season the first um when i was an amateur i was i started coaching and i started coaching uh first with the collegiate team that i that i rode for obviously in college mm-hmm. Um, so I, I sort of took over that role for a couple of years and then from there, um, and, and in the meantime, I would race myself. Um, and then from there I took on some clients of my own 
that you know would just pay a hundred dollars a month and I would and I'd ride with them and give them a training plan and that kind of thing. Um, I worked for a small coaching company that a friend of mine was was still still owns. Um, kind of branched off of that and then. I mean, that was all just sort of getting by in the very short term. Um, well, I mean, everything still was. And then at the end of uh, my first year as a, as a semi-pro, you would say, on Jelly Belly, um, and that was I, was, I was a professional technically, but I, I wasn't getting paid really. At the end of that year, I, I had, I had a, a shitty offer to stay with them another year at, at very little money again. And it was kind of like, I, I knew I couldn't quit because I'd had these, I'd had a few moments like, like you, you sort of mentioned these breakout moments and the reality was there were, there were five of them. Like every, every year I'd have a breakout moment and it was just like, no one would really notice or it, or, or they would notice and it, it just didn't, didn't go as far as you'd think. Um, so, but, but it would, but I would notice and I knew that I can't quit, but, but I have to do something to keep myself going. I have to feel like I'm not wasting my life in this sport where I'm, I'm looking around at, at these people that, that a lot of them chase it, you know, until they're 40. Um, and I, I couldn't, I couldn't be one of those. I had to have something else going on. I think it helped. Um, so I started the, the first business then, and it was just like kind of just a, a joke with, with some cycling jerseys. Um, and now like we I have, I have sponsors. I can't even really talk about that, but it's still, Basically, once it started to to sell a little bit, and it's still it's it's not a whole lot. Um, but once it became real work, was sort of when my next racing season was in the thick of things, and uh, and I I found a partner, um, and basically made the deal with him that that if he that that he can have half of the company, so I have the ideas, and he kind of does the work, um, and that's how it's been been ever since then. That was 2010. Um, and he, so he handle he's, he's there in, in an office and he has the, he does the shipping and the inventory and that kind of thing. And, uh, so with podium legs, we, we, that was, that was off the market last year, um, as we got FDA approval on it. And so basically my partner's name's John, he kind of handled, um, the day to day of getting it approved. So I, I found the manufacturer years ago and, and did the design and the logo and that kind of thing. And, and then the, you know, when it shows up on a boat, it's going to show up at, at John's house and, uh, and, and he's going to handle taking care of the customers and, and getting ads for it and that kind of thing. And, and basically like, I don't, I don't have to do much anymore. What I do is sort of when I have time and I have an idea and, and I can contribute, I will. But, but for the most part, that's just an off season thing. Uh, and the last, the last, last year, that sort of, it, it kind of was backburnered and, and this year it'll be the same. Because uh, now bike racing is a full time job. I'm against guys that, you know, when they're not on the bike, they're getting a massage and they're, you know, they're eating right and all that. Like before, that that really wasn't my option. But now I have to be part of that. You also talk about that moment as well, sort of when you get to a certain point in your career where you have to start taking it seriously and you have to do certain things in order to get the recovery or or whatever it is, the miles in in the legs before you actually can be competitive at higher levels you talk about that coming after four years or so of being on the bike um yeah i guess so in when i started racing like racing at all that was freshman year of college um and at that point you know i was it was college and then and and racing was kind of the next thing but i you know i had a coach and i did all my rides every day and then i'd I'd go to class um and when that was done it sort of shifted pretty much immediately to racing a bike 
was, was my first priority. And then finding a way to make enough money to survive was the next thing that I did. Um, and you know, and the latter was, was a lot of work and it, it definitely took something out of the, out of the bike racing, but it was, you know, you have to do it. So, so that would be, you know, starting the, the clothing or the podium legs or, um, or coaching back then. Yeah. So I was just going to start talking about developing the other skill that you have, which is writing. And you were able to kind of do this in a formal sense through cycling um, from your very first pro team and when you started blogging for bicycling back then, you know, 2008, 2009, I think it was, yep. which is sort of fascinating as well to me because I want to get behind and understand what the motivation was. Was it simply just another income source or you wanted to use, use and develop your skill or desire to share cycling with the world? What was your motivation from the start? Um, I mean, it was a mixture of all those things. I think I, I majored in English and journalism in college, and and part of it was was sort of the same like the same desperation I spoke of that that if I'm I don't want to be one of the many guys who who cycling kind of eats up, um, and and that was just that was a very scary thought the whole time, and and I had this this degree that you know I worked pretty hard for and. I, I didn't want to waste it. So, so a lot of it was, I, I need to, you know, what, what can, what can you write about? You write about what you know. And kind of that was, that was my world at that point was, was bike racing. So I, I, the, the blog made sense. And a lot of guys have blogs. There wasn't anything really unique about that, but, um, but I think my degree made it a little easier to, to, to sell. And that kind of became a, a way to tell my story and express myself and, which, which really felt good. And, and I think part of it was, I wanted to tell part of it was a goal of getting on a, getting on a team where I thought, you know, if I have a blog on, on bicycling magazine, or if I have articles and I mentioned some sponsors, then, you know, then for sure so-and-so will, will pick me up. And it, um, it never really helped as much as I thought it would, or as, as it should. Um, I think now it's appreciated a lot more, um, where, where teams are really like, for one thing, where Garmin's probably the first team that I'm on, that, that the team is, the sponsors are really looking for a return on their investment. So each each sponsor definitely, they monitor the, the social media, and they're all very active on that, and, and they see the blogs, and they see the articles, and like, um, you know, if I if I manage to get the, the term Garmin Vector into a, an article in Bicycling Magazine, I know that that someone's going to see that and appreciate it, um, and, and and that translates to value. So it kind of the, the writing sort of went, went across all those. Um, and then at some point I, I, I'd saved all the, all the, everything I wrote, I kind of just put it all into one massive document. And at some point I realized like, Hey, that thing was like 300 pages. Um, maybe I could just make a book out of it, just sort of hack it up and, and delete most of it. Um, and, and that was kind of what I did. I just, I just went through and, and, and dumped a lot of stuff and filled in some gaps. Um, and that was the same year. That was the Trinidad era when, uh, when Kenda folded and didn't have anything else to do. Um, I guess a lot of it is the, and this goes with the, the businesses as well, that you don't realize how much free time you have if you're a bike racer, especially if you're not going to races that much. Like this year, I think I'll have 70 race days. Um, so that's, you know, that's, that's more training and, and more travel and that kind of thing. But the last few years it was, it was mid forties. 
Um, so that's a month of nothing to do, uh, if you think about it. And, you know, the season, the season was shorter on both sides. So the, you know, this year I was racing in January. In the past, I didn't start racing until March. Um, and, and this year, again, I'll be going through October, and, and previous years it was August. So, so there, yeah, there was a lot of free time to, to do all kinds of things, kind of just explore and bike racing in a way um, gave me the freedom to do that. I definitely think that you're not shy of hard work, though, and, and that goes a long way in kind of as much as keeping your eyes open for opportunities but for wanting to put the work in when it comes down to it as well because I'm sure it's very easy at the end of a hard ride. Everyone knows that feeling that just to sit down and do nothing. Right. Yeah, that's, that's, that's definitely true. Um, I don't know where I got that. I think, I think, I think bike racing taught me how to, how to work hard, to tell you the truth. Just the, in, in college when, when you're kind of just – it was – Every, every moment was either I'm with the cycling team or I'm in class and then I go to bed. I didn't, you know, I didn't, you don't get to party and that kind of thing. And it just sort of like, it sort of just set me in that mode that, that never, never quite went away. I think it's safe to say here that Phil has worked really hard to get to this point. So you can imagine the relief of signing a pro contract and finally being able to relax. The moment that this hit him was a quiet moment on an ordinary day. The end of last year when I'd signed the contract with this team and, and I had a, a season over, um, honest, honestly, it was the first time I relaxed in um, five or six years. The first time that I that I like went to a movie in a movie theater with my girlfriend it was like, oh, I can I can do this. Like I can spend eight dollars and I can sit here like a human being. <laughs> I remember th- this, this is a funny weird story that sticks in my mind. I don't know if anyone else will sort of realize it, but like I like I said, I've been I've been burning it so hard between the book and the and all this stuff that the end of last season I you know I took a month off like everybody does and I wasn't training um, and I went with my girlfriend to to this little strip in Los Angeles and we were just going to have, um, you know, have breakfast and, and a coffee or something. And we're, we're walking from my car and, and I wanted a juice across the street for later. And she wanted a coffee at the coffee shop for now. And I was like, Hey, I'll walk across the street. And while you're in line at the coffee place, I'll go grab the juice for later. And she's like, Phil, it's a Saturday morning. Relax. Just stand in line and we'll, we'll be together. And, and you know, if there's no reason to, no reason to be efficient right now, and I was like, "Oh," and like that—that that had never clicked for me. But it was this weird luxury, this inefficiency that you can just like relax and enjoy your time. Um, and and I think being able to do that when I'm not training now is is really pleasant. Of course, the other half of turning pro is doing the training. Relaxing in the pro world means that you're able to focus on training because the hard work doesn't stop. Here. In fact, I think this is where it really begins, especially when you are a pro. And part of this learning was aligning with the right people. And one of those was his now teammate and housemate, Tom Danielson. Um, yeah, Tom, Tom's a good, I'm actually sitting on his sofa right now. I'm, I'm living with him in, uh, in Girona uh, while I'm in Spain this year. He, he let me rent out his room. Tom honestly was, I'd, I'd, I'd raced a lot of years and I'd won some things that Tom was the first person to come up to me and, and, and this was when I was training with him in, in Tucson and say, Phil, you're good enough to race in Europe. Um, you know, and all the national team folks and, and whatever the directors I tried to contact in the past, they basically told me, yeah, you're not good enough. You're too old. From when I was 23, I was too old to, to get to Europe. Um, and, and Tom was the first one to, to sort of be like, okay, you're, 
you're good enough. This is what you need to do. And, and he was also kind of the first, the first access I'd had where, you know, I started racing in Florida. I didn't, I didn't have the, I didn't have the resources. I didn't have any, I didn't have a lot of friends in the sport. You know, you, you make friends locally, but I didn't have anyone at the top level. So kind of when I found someone who, who was gracious enough to, to teach me something, I'd, I'd grab onto them and, and not let go. Um, and first that was Jeremy Powers, the, the pro cyclocross racer. We were teammates on Jelly Belly. Um, and Jeremy's just a great guy. And he kind of, he, he came to stay with me a couple of times and we trained together and, you know, we're, we were different disciplines. So he didn't really, he couldn't really coach me on what I needed to do to, to race well on the road. But he, he taught me a lot about lifestyle. And this was so when I came into Bissell and it was the first time I could, I could afford to buy vegetables at the grocery store. Jeremy kind of guided me through that. And it was like, no, you need to, this is how you need to live. And this is how much you need to sleep. Um, that kind of thing. And Tom suddenly like I, I sort of stumbled into someone who was one of the best in the world and had been around the, for better or for worse, uh, some of the best resources and some of the best minds in the sport. Not maybe not the best if you, if you want to think about it, but the people, you know, the people who were, who were involved in, in postal and, and all the drugs and all that shit were also, you know, they were looking at the whole game and nutrition and, and power and, and Tom, Tom learned a lot from that. Um, and sort of to have, to have his wealth of knowledge was, um, was, was crucial. And then, you know, him making phone calls to JV about this, this dude from Florida, who's, who's pretty good, um, was also quite useful. So yeah, Tom, Tom definitely made my training more, um, from, from focusing on the 20 minutes, which I think was, was really useful. And, and he was the first one to notice that I was weak at the, at the 300 watt kind of thing. Um, and, and telling me how to train that. And then I guess the one interesting thing that I learned was the dedication where I, I trained hard, like every year I thought, and, and I still think I trained as hard as I could have, but, but only riding with Tom was I like, Oh, this is how hard I should have trained <laughs> where you get home and you sit on the floor in the shower because you can't stand. Um, and I, and I was doing that every day for a month with, with him in Tucson um, and I was like, shit, this is, this is real training and it's, it's miserable. <laughs> um, and it's, but, but that was kind of what it took to get to that next level. And now like, you know, in the, in the past I would sort of see, you know, I would, I would think of a nice route. If, if I was going for a bike ride, I'd, I'd, I'd sit on the, on, on Garmin connect or something and, and I'd look and say, okay, here's, here's a pretty cool route. This will go on nice views and this will go along the beach and that'll be cool. And then, Riding with Tom, we went up and down the same mountain over and over because that's how you kill yourself. We would just we'd ride to the, we would meet at the base of Mount Lemmon every day and we'd go up it for twenty minutes and as hard as we could and then well as hard as I could, which was I don't know how hard he was going. He wasn't sweating that much. And then we'd go back down and we'd do it again. And it was kind of like it, you know it's stupid and it wasn't it wasn't pleasant and it's not you know but um, but that's kind of a level of, of dedication that I didn't know existed. Um, that, that now I'm, now I know like, okay, if I want to do an interval, I go to the same climb every time for that interval. And, and I, and that's a way to track it where it's not only you're looking at power, but you know, the road and you know, the grade and, um, and you control as much as you can. And you're, and, and when you look at the power files at the end, it's like, yep, that was, that was better. That was better than I would have done if I had just, you know, picked a four hour route through the, you know, through the country and, 
and done my intervals when I felt like it on roads that I don't know. Yeah, that's uh, that's a really good insight actually as to um, looking for people that are just beyond you and, and sort of grabbing onto those people and trying to learn as much as you can about what they know and, and how they do things. I think right. that, that um, that's a really good lesson because you can kind of get stuck and you, you stay with the people that you're training with and do you agree the only way to get better is by riding with better riders? Like it sounds really obvious, but looking and for those people and putting yourself out there so you're outside of your comfort zone when you're training or, or whatever it is and just hurting like hell to stay on someone's wheel is going to be the best training that you'll ever have. It, it definitely helps. You can, I mean, for years I sort of did it on my own and I was just setting goals with my power meter and my coach and, and the races I was doing. The, the reality was I was, you know, I'm around a bunch of guys who are, who are amateurs and I'm, and I want to be a professional and I'm thinking like I have to outwork everyone around me. Um, I have to be more dedicated and, and more, and so that it was kind of the baseline that, that it, it can be done that way. You don't have access to, to other people and, and those other resources. But, um, but when you see someone who, who knows more than you, and what I noticed a lot of times was it's not the person who says, Oh, listen, I'm going to help you. I know a lot that that guy never did shit for me. That guy, that guy wasted my time. But the guy who, the guy who's like, Oh yeah, you can come along and, and who lets you watch. And then, you know, if you ask a question, you know, I, I would do those rides with Tom. And I'd be like, what'd you have for breakfast this morning? What'd you have for dinner last night? And, and he would, and he would just, and he would tell me everything. And, and I remember Jeremy Powers, like, what do you put in your smoothies? What, uh, what am I juicing? What are we doing? So, you know, you do the best you can with, with what you have, but then eventually you, it's finding that person that's, that knows more. And then that's also willing to share and, and not be, not be competitive about it. Um, is, is very helpful too. And a lot of times, like, you know, if I had the secret to win races, why should I tell you? That's, <laughs> and, and, and I understand that too. There's some, there's some intervals that, that like last year when I figured out like how to win the races in the U S that I wouldn't want to tell my teammates, I'd be like, listen, you need, here's what you need to do for 20 minutes. And you just go do repeats on a climb at 400 Watts. And then the next week you do 410 and the next week you do 420. And then eventually you plateau, but, but maybe you're there. Um, and it, cause it's, it seems so simple. Um, if you, if you have the time and, and the energy to, to really sit down there and do it. So how good is he? His numbers are pretty impressive, but it's not just about numbers when you're talking pro cycling. It's also about what to do and when talking about actually training and things. I've picked up some bits of information about your, your data and stuff, which is kind of the nitty gritty that, that anyone that is into training loves and, and gets into. And you talk about putting on 15 to 20 watts on average per year since you started. So building up, I'm assuming it's FTP that you're building up year after year. Something like that, yeah. I mean, it, it ranged. Um, but yeah, you just every year you just kind of see it creep up. So now you've said that you sit at around 410, 430 watts, depending on what time of the season that is. Mm-hmm. And um, I want to know behind that steady climb, though. Like, I understand that it wouldn't just be like a set. 15, 20 watts per year, you know, it would start off quite large and then get slower. But behind when that's happening, are there any specific moments that stand out to you where there was like, you'd felt you'd gotten over a major physical hurdle or was it just the consistency that kept you improving? Um, there, I mean, there's, there's definitely specific training and it was sort of every year. Um, well, every time you, 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 you find a weakness and then, you target it in training. So I remember my, my first, my first coach is Colby Pierce and he actually, I worked with him for five years and then 
um, kind of started with a different coach, not because I wasn't happy with Colby, but because we'd been together for five years and I didn't want to do my whole career with the same coach. And I, and every year I thought I might, might, might be my last year back then. So it was kind of like sort of a do or die thing. Um, but so Colby Pierce works with, with Garmin Sharp now. Um, and, and he's still involved, which is kind of nice, but he sort of identified, okay. Um, and this was racing in the U S he was like, okay, what, what kind of effort does it take? The kind of, the kind of races that Phil's good at. So, so, you know, road races with some good climbs in it. And he, he figured out that, that a good five minute power would be, would be very helpful for me to, to make the early break. Cause all I, I, you know, I wasn't going to race for the win at the end. Um, but I might be the guy who makes the break that stays away and then I can get rid of the, uh, the guys I'm with kind of thing. Or, uh, so he sort of looked at that the five minute would be something that was worth targeting, um, where that's the amount of time it would take for a race to blow apart. That's what it would take to bridge across to the break or to establish a break or that kind of thing. Um, so that year we worked on that. And then lo and behold, like I was in a lot of early breaks that year. Um, you know, I was an amateur that year and I thought if I'm in a bunch of early breaks at all these big races, big races that the national races in the U S then maybe one of them will pick me up. One of those little teams will be like, yeah, a guy that can get in every early break, he's useful. So I did that. Um, so that was, that was one year. And then other years I kind of worked on, I ended up doing a lot of criterium. So I'd work on, work on sprints and criterium type efforts and, again, the five minutes where, where I could be active in, in the end of the race. Cause I, I wasn't ever going to be there in the, in the sprint at the end. Um, but where I could be useful for my team. And then the beginning of last year, I, I started focusing on, on 20 minutes, which is kind of, I, I realized that I, I was at that point, I was one of the guys that could win things in the U S I'd won a couple stage races. I'd won some uphill time trials and, and, and it was like, okay, the 20 minutes is, that's, that's, that's what I'm good at right now. That's what I'm decent at. If I can be one of the best at that, maybe, maybe I can get a result at something like the tour of California or, or Colorado kind of thing. Um, and that was when I met Danielson and he sort of, yeah, I think he, he was a big help. He identified that, that basically I was the only one who could climb with him on Mount Lemon for 20 minutes that he'd ever ridden with. He'd been trying to find someone to train with. And, and I turned out to be the guy that could, that could ride at least in Tom's draft, if not next to him on, on his little intervals. And, um, and I noticed how, how useful that was in the races. And I was pretty specific about, about getting that. So 20 minutes was that meant I could win the time trial at San Dimas. And that meant I could, you know, attack the, the final selection, the tour of the Gila and, and bridge a big gap to the break and then attack them at the Merco classic, which were, you know, these were the races that I had. Um, but that effort kind of like figuring out that's something I was good at and then making sure that I was the best at it in, in my group definitely set me apart and it, and it got me a few results that I wouldn't have otherwise. And then for this year, the, it was a whole different step where I had the 20 minutes and I did this physiological testing that the Vodders uh, sent me to in Denver where, you know, it was, it's, they, they prick your blood. There's no, there's no lies there. They're, they're pricking your finger and testing your, your lactate levels. Um, and he confirmed that, yeah, Phil's power to wait for 20 minutes is about as good as anybody's on the planet. So just to cut Phil off here, this is not a humble brag, although he is talking about himself in the third person. But what I failed to mention when I said that Phil's FTP or 60 minute power is between 
410 and 430 watts is that his watts per kilogram for this effort are between 6.19 and 6.48 watts per kilogram and his 20 minute power would roughly be 5% higher than this. So when you compare these numbers to the Coggins power profile chart, Phil sits pretty much at the top of FTP and for his 20 minute power, he's definitely about as good as anyone on the planet. Um, but I was pretty weak at the, at, at kind of just below that, at, at below the threshold where the kind, of, the kind of effort that you need to be in a breakaway all day at a big race or even to sit in the field at a very hard race. So the Tour of Colorado, Tour of Utah, I was suffering so much in the group that I couldn't make the final selection um, or, or I, didn't have, I didn't have my 20 minutes left by the, by the third hour of, of 300 watts. You know, I couldn't do 420 for 20 minutes anymore. Um, and that was something that I needed to work on. And, and Vodders made me do this, the, um, the, the Tour de Phil, we called it, a, a little fake grand tour. Well, I did was ride 300 watts all day for several weeks. With his ability now to focus on riding, he was able to do training like this, the seemingly crazy Tour de Phil. And for more details on it, you can check out a piece that he wrote for Velo News, which I do highly recommend. It's a quick read, but it goes into a little bit more detail. Um, and sure enough, like the, the first race I did was a Tour of San Luis, and I got an early break that first day. And in the past, you know, I'd been in some early breaks at the Tour of California kind of thing, and and in those in those races, I I suffered like just just being able to ride that effort all day. I I didn't I didn't quite have it. And uh, but from from Vodder's kind of coaching me that month and and what he what he identified in the in the power testing, I, I focused on it. And then Saint Louis, I'm in I'm in the all day break the first day, four hours, and I I couldn't believe how easy it was. And it was the same power, and I'm like these guys next to me are suffering, and I I feel fine. And I haven't even, I hadn't even really been training, um, you know, like race pace yet. I, I wasn't supposed to be on form. Es un hombre del Garmin el que viene allí escapado con todo Philip Gaimon. Philip Gaimon, vamos a tratar de confirmar si es él finalmente. Allí está el final. This is Phil winning the stage race from this breakaway. Phil didn't mention at all during the interview that he won this race, the first stage of the Tour de Saint-Louis, his first stage as a World Tour pro for Garmin Sharp. From the outside, it is a fairy tale start, but in a post-race interview, Phil was quick to dismiss it, saying that it was one-in-a-million shot because no one knew him. Much like his chances of turning pro, a one-in-a-million shot because no one knew him. But if you look at what got him the win, though, and the pro contract itself, it was hard work. It was working strategically on his strengths. It was working at the off-the-bike stuff and surrounding himself with people that are where he wanted to be. So any last bits of advice from Phil to you? The power testing is good. And then thinking about the races that you're in, and you know, if you have a power meter, it's, it's very useful. But, but even if you don't, like you can sort of see what you're good at and how how you're going to win races. So if you're doing criteriums, yeah, a sprint helps, but if you're me, you're never going to be a sprinter. So you have to figure out how is how am I going to win a criterium? Um, and and you have to figure out identify that that power and and focus on that and and having you know having a really good coach um, who can who can look at that and who has data from other riders and really knows the races. Um, was crucial to me all along. So now that he's a pro, what's next for Philip Guyman? You guessed it, more hard work and hopefully more winning. Yeah, that's that's the funny part too, is you get out of this big maze that that I just navigated and, and now 
I, I came out and now I'm, I'm right back into a bigger maze where it's just, it's different, you know, like now I'm, now I'm not trying to figure out how to get on these big teams. Now I'm trying to figure out how to, you know, how to win a big race. So, so yeah, it, it never ends. There you have it, turning pro the Phil Guyman way. Trust me when I say that there are lots more juicy details about this journey, which Phil has put into words in his new book, Pro Cycling on $10 a Day, which he says is pretty much all the things he wish he knew when he got started, what you're in for if you decide to chase pro cycling, and what it's really like on the way, and why it's worth it. It's due for an April 2014 release, and you can pre-order now at a whole bunch of different places. I've got the link to the book's website, on my site that you can check out and here's where you can get hold of phil himself um my twitter is at at phil guyman is probably the best i'm 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 pretty on that and you know i'll talk about my book and that kind of thing there um i've got a blog on on velonews.com that people can can check out that i'll do it's kind of like once a month i'll just pick whatever interesting stories and try and write something a little unique more than a race report kind of deal um, yeah, it's, it's not hard to find me. I, I, I do I do well making that easy. Alrighty, let's get to the tech hacks and products section. And this week, it's a product, Race Dots. I don't know if you've heard about these. They're not actually out for sale as yet. They have just gone through the process of a crowdfunding campaign. They are taking pre-orders, but let's get to the product itself first. Instead of using safety pins to poke holes through your beautiful jerseys, you use these race dots, which are very strong magnets instead. I'm not sure that they're race proven yet, but I'm sure they wouldn't be on sale unless these guys knew it could survive a wet and horrible race. So it's a really good product. I I feel it's a really good product because I hate pricking my jerseys and it's a pain in the ass when you're trying to fumble around and find some when you get to the race and you don't have any. The cost is quite expensive, but hopefully they will last a lifetime. And it's 30 bucks for five of them and 45 for 10. So not the cheapest things in the world, but definitely something that is going to save you a lot of heartache. Now, the quote from the top of the show, and it's a cheeky one today because it is Phil Guyman himself. And I was just trying to show another side of him. He is definitely a pretty funny dude. And maybe there's a bit of bromance happening right now. But that's it for this week. You have been listening to the Semi-Pro Cycling Performing Podcast. And remember to head over to wheelhouse.cc for all of your coaching needs. You can have a look at the program there and sign up if you're interested in getting more information that's detailed and will help you ride better. So till next week, get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box, whichever one you're into. (laughs) 